welcome Dr. Laura Stark. This is the Access Reality Podcast with Dr. Laura Stark. And you are a cancer naturopath, president of the Saskatchewan Association of Naturopathic Doctors. That's right. And you're the cancer care director at Good Health That's right. All right. So today I wanted to uh, just ask you about the topic of the hour, which is indeed what's going on with this coronavirus and (laughs) what are your views on it? Uh, you know, from a naturopathic medicine perspective. And I know this isn't probably official advice or anything, it's just going to be your opinion, right? Indeed, we can talk about some lots of interesting ideas about viruses and contagion and pandemics and what's going on here. But I'd love to talk about it at a depth that no one else is really talking about it. And so, yeah, the ideas we'll talk about today are really do not represent the majority of naturopathic medicine. They that they do not represent naturopathic advice, but I think it's valuable to explore ideas that don't necessarily just go along with what everyone else is thinking. I think it's valuable to look more broadly and ask good questions so we don't just stay stuck. So we'll try to contrast the traditional medical advice with mainstream naturopathic advice and see what the differences are there. Maybe then you can go broader even and talk about sure. the support there. Okay, sounds like a plan. All right, yeah. So um, we know it's a virus. It's a flu-like virus. It's part of the Corona family. It's a specific type. That's why they say COVID-19. Mm-hmm. Um, a novel variety. Mm-hmm. In my opinion, this might be controversial, but I don't feel that it's a severe disease. I think the, the cases that are out there are probably a wild underestimate of what's actually out there. A lot of people are asymptomatic or have very mild flu. Mm-hmm. Can be deadly, however, for elderly people, those with predisp- you know, with medical conditions. Yeah. Um, but the problem with this to me is the fact that these cases are clustered in a close kind of a time period, which overwhelms resources. So for example, if they mm-hmm. say sixty five thousand people were sold out from the flu last year in the US. Yeah. Well, that's spread out that over a year. spread out over right? eight months. Yeah. Correct. Yeah. But when you get all, when you get a lot of cases that need ICU within a very short period of time, that's the issue. That's, I, so this is my take on it. Mm-hmm. And we know all the usual, which is you're supposed to quarantine, not touch surfaces, clean, you know, wear masks if you're coughing, if you have symptoms, if you've traveled, if you've been in contact with it. We know all of that, right? Mm-hmm. Sure the public is heard. I hope so. Yeah. <laughs> so what is there? You mentioned your what you're going to be saying is mainstream naturopathic advice. Is that any different from traditional medical advice? Mainstream naturopathic advice? Yes. Uh, well, certainly we look at the problem a little bit more holistically. So recognizing that the issue just isn't the virus, but also the body's own health. So what can we do to be our most resilient selves so that we're not as susceptible? Right. And for the that most susceptible they, population. But they give the same advice. It's just that they go beyond that. Like they don't say don't follow the usual advice of not touching. Oh, right. No, that's all. Yes, all part of, that is all yeah, part of they it. They just for sure. go beyond and say, oh, in addition to that, exactly. take care of your immune system. Right. Exactly. What are we doing with your nutrition? What herbal remedies can we use to help boost and um, give extra layers of of support and resiliency if you were to encounter? Anything such a virus. specific immunified, or is this just general? What now? 
spectrum have students? So we had talked about how they all differ. <gasps> there can be a ton of different approaches from the nutritional focusing on vitamins like A, C, D, zinc, um, or there can be herbal approaches focusing on things like elderberry or other antimicrobial herbs. Um, but yeah, the, the approaches naturopathically can be very broad. There are so many tools to support um, the immune system and to support um, particularly antiviral work. So did your association that you're the president of, the Saskatchewan Association of Naturopathic mm -hmm. Doctors, they come up with specific guidelines or recommendations or responses? Uh, well, as a regulatory body, we're more responsible for what our doctors do and how they respond. So, um, so what did you call our, our movement is in alignment with the Saskatchewan Health Authority and the College of Physicians and Surgeons in that naturopaths are considered um, primary care providers and as such essential services, just like a family physician. So we have all the same regulations as a family physician. So any services that can be moved to telehealth are moved to telehealth. And in those rare instances where an in-person service really is required, is deemed essential, um, then we're able to do that, but under uh, partaking all the um, all the standard safety precautions of cleaning and maintaining social distancing and all those fun things. Yeah, so uh, I think for doctors, anything uh, kind of elective is counseling. Yes. And, you know, so except for emergencies or essential vital things. Precisely. Yes, counseling needs treatment now. Yeah, all exactly. Those, right? so, Deeming those things on an individual basis of what is essential and the question we're posed to ask is if the treatment or assessment was delayed for a couple weeks or a few months would it cause harm to the patient and so that can the answer to that question can change from day to day or week to week but that's kind of our, our reference point to determine whether an, a, a service is essential and whether we go ahead with it with yeah. the due precautions or push it off I have to say, I'm somewhat surprised they treated it as kind of general family practice services. That, yeah. uh, that was pretty good, I thought. It is. It's nicely affirming. We should be, um, but we're in the process of updating our legislation. So that new legislation that was passed in 2015 does put us um, like as family physician peers directly, um, but it's not fully enforced yet. So it was nice to have that validation from the Ministry of Health saying, yep, of course you're in the same categories family physicians no you're not canceled like chiropractors and we're like oh thanks yeah, because we are trained we are and and we've offered ourselves as the naturopathic association in saskatchewan and uh, individual practitioners to be available for help in the covid crisis you know we're trained we could we could be in testing sites we could be taking swabs we could be doing blood tests we could be doing all those some frontline things, but we could also uh, step up and take a role in like second or third line support where other healthcare practitioners are needed in the front lines. Well, if we had our prescribing rights, we could be helping people, you know, renew their blood pressure medications and those secondary non-essential things were more bodies that could step up and help in those roles with the shortages we're going to be experiencing. Well, do you know if that's been the same with another jurisdiction in North America? Like the naturopaths are given that status and allowed to continue to operate? Um, yes, that has been in all the regular regulated um, uh, jurisdictions. As far as I know, that has been the case. Hmm. Yep. All right. I have to say, I was personally surprised by that. I thought it'd be treated, as you said, like 
Yeah. yeah. No, but we are primary care providers. All right. Great. Good for you. Right? Yeah. <laughs> Recognized. Validation. Awesome. Yeah. So, um, the, uh, yeah. So, tell us about what your thoughts are in general on coronavirus. Well, I too kind of share your opinions. I have had no anxieties about it. I have no fear around it, which kind of puts us in an odd category, right? We're unusual creatures in this realm of hysteria. You mean me and you? Yeah. yeah. Well, the way, I, the way I view it personally is that we are drowning in microscopic organs. We are. Like viruses. Like there are more, you know, a new trend in the, IC, in the intensive care, critical care world is the microbiome. Mm-hmm. And the effects that medications have on the microbiome and the relation of that to disease. Exactly. Which is actually inching closer to alternative health. It sure is. We've been talking about that for decades. Yeah, but what they found out is there's more genetic material and bacteria yes. that are in your body than it is than you have genetic material. So right. it's almost like you're a guest in your own body from that perspective. And it really like puts a spin on the philosophical question of who am I? <laughs> right? It's a little bit mind blowing. And it it should make us question some things. Hmm. Yeah, so yeah, so tell us more, your general thoughts. You said you're not yeah. you're not wrapped up in the mass hysteria, which is good. I don't think anybody should be, right? Even right. if you are if you, even if you're not sure how severe this is and you're truly afraid, that's fine. But it's true. Know. It's never functional to be wrapped up in mass hysteria. It does things like cause toilet paper shortages. Yeah, which is what, what's that about? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, anyway. <laughs> There's some good jokes, but we don't need to go there. <laughs> so I totally agree with you that the big problem with with this one is um, how quickly it's spreading, right? So in the regular healthy individual and um, non, say, uh, particularly the elderly and people with comorbidities, right? They're dealing with some other health concern already, those are our most susceptible that this becomes really dangerous for and we need hospital beds for. But for the general population, it is, it's just a mild flu. Um, you know, back in February, I had the terrible three-week sinus cold from hell. I'm sure it was quite more severe than the coronavirus. Oh, it was brutal. Um, and like all of those normal colds are still going around. The stats are interesting and, well, I don't think I have a place to really comment on the, on the stats. I think there's probably, like you say, a lot more cases than we know about, clearly because testing has its limitations. And that's part of the problem with the, with the rapid spread. But the biggest issue will be, because of that rapid spread, exactly, the demand on resources, but also the... the big problem being kind of the hysterical presumption of need of resources it's causing issues before resources. we need to be so resources meaning um both on the just like personal level of people being able to access the things they need for daily living and now the shutdown of services i i wonder if we're going a little bit too far because the shutdown needs to happen for a long time to be able to contain this. I think a lot of people hope and assume like, oh, we're shutting down for two weeks. No. If you shut down for two weeks. We're lucky if this is two months. Correct. You shutting things down isn't going to 
make the virus go away faster. It's actually going to keep it around for longer. It's going to slow the spread so that hopefully the healthcare system can keep up with the resources. Basically spread the infections out is what we're trying to do. To make it behave like a, like a normal pandemic. Exactly. And I don't think people understand that. I think yeah. the idea is, oh, if we just all quarantine now, it'll go away fast and we'll be over this. But that's actually not the goal of quarantine and self-isolation at all. Yeah, so do you, like the number of horrific deaths that we're seeing notwithstanding, do you feel the economic fallout and consequences from the panic <sighs> far outweigh and maybe even cause as many deaths as That's the serious itself? question, right? Can we absolutely speculate? No, I'm not an economist and things like that, but I'm sure we will be experiencing the economic fallout of this for decades. Yeah. I don't doubt it. I don't know if we'll ever be able to fully recover, really. Well, do you think we will of, change the landscape of business. We will have destroyed a lot of services. Well, a lot. So, you know, maybe the majority of small businesses have now closed and laid off their workers, right? Yeah. Like, what fraction of those are going to go back after, after months of not, no revenue expenses, some expenses at least? Right. Coming? Hopefully, the adaptable ones will find space in an online market right away. But if everyone's in the That's economic crunch, yeah. exactly, if everyone's in the same economic crunch, there's going to be pullback and, well, I don't know. I don't know how much growth we can see in an, in an online market at this time either, right? Because so many people are off work, that's going to take a hit as well. I'm sure clearly a lot of things are moving online, but... Uh, the online, I think the online, um, the percentage of online transactions are going to increase, but... Relative to the loss of well, when business. At, when you look at the overall... Yeah, I think it's going to be lower. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, what? So, okay. So, let's say there's a family, they're locked in a home, but, you know, um, what advice do you give them health wise? Other than, you know, being paranoid about social distancing and not touching <laughs> things, like what advice as a person can you give Indeed. to them? Here's, so here's my top list. We'll start at the bottom of the list and move to the most important. So, general things like, Feed yourself well, <laughs> right? Eat adequate protein. That's what our immune cells are made out of. Eat lots of veggies, your spectrum of veggies. So is there Those sugar are... in the <laughs> Yeah, mm, careful on all, all the perishables. Try to access our fresh stuff. Spring is coming. Grow your own garden this year, right? Now is the time. <laughs> is, it, is it true that eating out of a can in general, anything in, in can is not good for you? Or is there something to that or? To like some, in, in big quantities, maybe? To some extent. Cans are lined with, um, with chemical preservatives and things to keep that uh, can from leaching other things into the food. And so like there's things like and, EDTA and yeah, other preservatives that make cans a little bit questionable. Okay. Tetra packs are supposedly better. Hmm. Somewhat. But they can be lined with BPA and other plasticizers as well. There's no yeah. escaping. Hmm. Eat it out of the ground. <laughs> um, yeah. So eating, eating well, of course, that's a foundation. Um, staying hydrated, critical to immune function and healthy mucous membranes to keep you protected, right? So back to the food first. Sure. So, um, eating well, um, a lot of people understand that to be, you know, balancing, you know, eating vegetables, um, right, fruits, 
do you take some of the council vitamins or? Sure, we could dive a little bit into the supplemental nutrition stuff just as well. Just give me some, like something that would work for, let's say, 80% people out yeah. there, just basic things. Exactly, the high level nutrients that we wanna focus on and the things we're trying to get from our food um, in good quantity are vitamin A, C, um, and zinc and vitamin D, those would be the top immune booster nutrients. Are these things you need to take as supplements and pills? Or can you get enough in the diet? A nice another color like a colorful array in your diet should get you adequate daily amounts. But in order to do an immune boost sufficient to um, combat something when you feel like you're coming down with something, um, a supplemental version really is um, the way to go. Roughly how much? Did so, you can overdose on things like vitamin Correct. A, right? Both vitamin A and D are fat soluble. So, well, a certain form of vitamin A. So we can get beta carotene. Um, that's the orange pigmented nutrient we get from our orange red veggies. Um, but we actually want the fat soluble version, retinol. Um, and it comes from foods like, well, liver would be the best example. Okay. So it's uh, a fatty food, um, high in organ meats. Um, so retinol so acutely, absolutely. Yeah. We want to get it as clean as possible. Now, like filter, nice, right? Yes, exactly. So it's, it's where the, all the, it's our the detox organ. So you want that from a clean animal. Um, I, I would eat liver from grass-fed animals that are not given their own set of processed food and antibiotics and chemicals to keep them healthy. I want, I want that animal living well out in a pasture eating its natural food without chemicals, then I will happily eat their liver. <laughs> Is it a good source of iron? Yes, iron, vitamin A, vitamin D, um, and the different animal sources have kind of different levels of those things, but also are um, good fatty acids as well, omega-3s, for example. Um, so lots of nutrients in our organ meats. Eat your offal. Um, so a dosage on vitamin A that can be appropriate. You can actually dose vitamin A short-term very high, um, something like 20,000 IUs. Um, okay. You can get drops that are 10,000 each, but a normal multivitamin might contain 2,000 versus 20,000. So big scale dosage, right? Mm -hmm. um, so we can temporarily take high-dose vitamin A. We can temporarily take high-dose vitamin D. Um, something like 10,000 IUs for maybe up to a week. Um, a normal dose through the kind of preventative season here through the winter can be something like up to 5,000. You can do 5,000 IUs over the, the long haul quite safely as us northern climaters that don't get enough sunlight. Um, that's an appropriate dose for the majority of us versus in the summer, I recommend like one to 3,000. Winter, four or 5,000. Acutely, bump it up to 10,000 for a few days. Uh, vitamin C is one that's very appropriate to get from food, although it can be hard to get enough from food. Um, and so I like to use a food source like a, a powdered camu camu berry. Um, oh, so you take it as a supplement too? Kind of, yeah. So that's like a powder that I can well, add people, to other foods or yeah. a smoothie or a drink. Well, people seem to think that vitamin C is mostly in oranges and lemon, things like citrus fruits, right? Yep. But in reality, don't the leafy green vegetables yep, like they, spinach, have it. they have more? Absolutely. Similar to nutrients like calcium, mm -hmm. the one things they need to get it from milk 
Well, leafy greens are actually probably our best source, a more absorbable source. Right. Yeah. So you would say even if somebody's taking a reasonable diet that would have vitamin C, you would still recommend a supplement? Now you that's know, the, I know it's difficult yeah. to quantify what's reasonable and how much, but you know. Exactly. Some bodies some bodies do really well on needing extra vitamin C and others don't seem to care as much. Um, my personal body doesn't seem to care as much versus I know some people who really thrive and feel a lot better if they have a decent amount of vitamin C always being supplemented into them. Um, and there'll be enzyme differences in our body that um, kind of require different levels. That's getting into a really kind of specific genetic medicine most, but um, to determine who that is. Um, or you just go with what feels good. You know, that self-experimentation of then feeling into how you feel. Um, taking vitamin C, does that make me feel stronger and more resilient? Or does it make me feel more acidic? And you find your appropriate kind of dosage to maintain yourself on. That can be an awareness practice, or you could go into genetic testing and kind of figure out so would it be good advice to say to someone then, um, okay, well, um, try to increase the amount of vitamin C you take per week by eating better. Absolutely. If you're not eating well now. Yep. Right? But if you are already eating well, then maybe try a little bit of a supplement. Exactly. And then see. And one then or two thousand. Yeah. One or two grams of vitamin C a day can be quite reasonable. Higher than that. Um, I usually reserve, except for those people who really thrive on high doses, um, for that acute situation. So like vitamin D, we have kind of a resting level. Then if we feel like something's coming on, we need a booster, then we can up that dosage quite dramatically for a temporary period of time. Now are all supplements or sources of supplements equal? Like no. These, right? Because Walmart has a section of them. How do you know? How, so without mentioning things necessarily, how would yeah. you know what's a good uh, supplement and what's not? When, they all say the same thing on the Kind of. Sometimes you'll see badges of like independent third-party testing. Um, in Canada, actually, we have the highest standards of supplement production. We have the best supplements in the world here in Canada, really? even compared to the States. Um, and that's just the industry's own self-standards that they've put on themselves. Um, the problem is it's not regulated externally. It's up to the manufacturing companies. But the general standard is that there's third-party testing to verify what's in those things and um, they really do strive for good quality here but one of the easy dividing lines is looking for professional line supplements they have higher standards versus the ones you'll find at walmart or shoppers um are they professional lines no because they're big names right? they are big names they are good at mass production and the issue is often the fillers and binders they put in manufacturing their capsules or their tablets that make the nutrients not so yeah. available and sometimes they're not using best science they just whatever's marketable whatever form even though we have science to show us that actually here's the most appropriate form of this nutrient to take yeah. they're like well we'll still just sell magnesium oxide Magnesium oxide, for example, should be left in the chemistry lab to make that little experiment where you make a little explosion. Okay. So, so for <laughs> not someone, for human bodies. Someone who doesn't know these things, mm -hmm. doesn't know the names and what they should be using it for, they just want to know, is this a good, that's simple, like Homer Simpson type thing. Is this a good one to take versus bad, right? 
I know some people, the way they do that, will go around the hospitals, you know, they'll go to, you know, the local, you know, holistic health food store. Yeah. They'll say, okay, I'll trust what they carry rather than, let's say, Walmart or somewhere else. Yeah. Um, there's that, definitely a little bit of a level up. Yeah. But even there, there's levels, right? Absolutely. Yeah. So is there like a quick way or no? They might not be, but I'm just asking. Is there a yeah. way for someone Honestly, to working with a professional. Yeah. Yeah. Because then because it does kind of suck yeah. because you also then get the layer of what does your body actually need? And that's what you'll get from working with a, a, a naturopath on answering those questions instead of just taking a bunch of stuff that might not actually apply to you. That might not be the important stuff for you. Yeah. Other priorities might be in play and a naturopath would help you determine that. Yeah. So, so to really to not waste your money. So it's wrong to willingly just go and buy a lot of supplements thinking that it's good, right? Big time. So I see a lot of people wasting money and wasting. And it can be dangerous, right? Exactly. What they're putting in their body. They're asking their body to do something with that. And if you're going in multiple directions, or people will just be taking little things in a dosage that's doing nothing for them. It's just a waste. Yeah. So having said that, we started out this yeah. conversation by saying we're going to um, see if there are some recommendations we can give that will apply to most people. Or Indeed. But is that a fool's errand? Is it? Is it? Does it have to be 100, in, 100% in terms of loss? supplements? In terms of supplements, it is a little bit. So, yeah. like that broad so statement I made about those nutrients. Yeah. So you're not telling people to that's go out there. No, not necessarily. Okay. So um, those are the same nutrients that are really important for healing after surgery, for example. Yeah. And and the that. and the basic way to access those is a colorful diet. You'll get them in adequate amounts to support healing in a colorful diet. You might be doing some green juices. That would be a really potent way to help you get there. So, so on a nutritional level, yeah. Okay, so is the is the best advice then get good nutrition? Yep. And you do need supplements, but don't go out venture on your own and decide what to get and what to get and how much of each and what you know that consult a professional. But you do need. Is that the best advice? Or would you say, no, I can comfortably tell people, go get this much vitamin D and such like this, and that'll be okay for most. Most is a dangerous word. Most is a dangerous word. Yeah. I would say those are the nutrients to look at, and there will be some people who are able to evaluate for themselves what's appropriate, and there will be some people who have different priorities, but wouldn't know unless they worked with a professional. Okay. But there are some general things that everyone can do beyond that, that are self-care practices that don't require you to go out and buy anything even. Okay. So the level up from nutrition is going to be hydration. Yes. Right? Absolutely critical for maintaining healthy mucous membranes, for keeping your energy up, for so many things. Hydrating is critical. Now, what was the classic saying? Was four to eight glasses of water Oh, yeah. Well, at least eight, I think, is now the. But, but there is some interesting individualized recommendations yeah, around like there. I don't. I'm not sure that applies to everyone. To be honest, I think for some people that's what me they neither. Need, and for some people they need less. And for some people, it depends on what they're doing. They might need a bit more. But yep. that also is not something you should just. It's not a cookie cutter approach, right? Yep. For me, the most important thing is. Um, where someone is at in their um, healing or disease journey. So 
determining whether they're in sympathetic tone or parasympathetic tone can give us the clue whether they need water or should actually be restricting water um, to go more appropriately along with what their body's trying to do. Okay, so just common sense. If they're sick, if they're uh, losing a lot of phlegm, if they have mm -hmm. diarrhea, if they, obviously they're losing water from the body, so they need to replace that, right? In addition to their daily requirements. Generally. But um, how does the person at home know if they're in sympathetic or parasympathetic tone? They probably don't. They don't, okay. So we could do some interesting education pieces around that. But. Yeah. So what? So then, um, for the person at home who's wondering, okay, should I take four or eight glasses of water now, or twelve? Uh, roughly two liters of water a day for everybody. Okay. You know, it's a great practice actually. Is trying to drink. You wake up in the morning, and within the first hour of being awake, drink a liter of water. First thing in the morning. First thing in the morning. That will set you up for the day to have proper thirst response that will keep you appropriately hydrated. But you'll do your overnight flushing. So you were concentrating waste overnight. Drinking that liter of water will help you flush out all that the acid waste through your kidneys and else, elsewhere throughout your body um, in that morning time period where it's most appropriate. And we won't get behind on our hydration. So the thirst signal actually works more properly throughout the day. And so then so a liter of water, a liter of water and oh, then I, let your body tell you what you need the rest of the day. Yeah, I think I've seen That's a uh, great practice. I think I've seen uh, some studies from, I think it was from Japan that says that you lose weight when you do that process. Generally, absolutely. Hmm. Yep, because you help flush out products of inflammation. So you lose water retention when you adequately flush. So then generally speaking, a liter of water first thing in the morning, then maybe another liter of spacing out. Exactly. Throughout the rest of the day. Yep. Or it might be more. Yep. And depending yep. on what you're doing, if you're exercising, if you're using more. Okay. But you'll probably be able to listen better to what your body's actually saying it needs. Yeah. Okay. So my go-to, which is mm -hmm. coffee first thing in the morning, probably not a good Do the thing. water first. It'll yep. change everything. Yep. Okay. <laughs> so All that's right. the next one. Um, another really great one, and I said these require no purchasing of anything, but castor oil packs over your liver. Castor oil is this sticky viscous oil that comes from the castor bean that used to use, be used old school um, internally to as a powerful laxative um, and even to, used to um, use it to treat constipation. Yes, exactly. Um, and even induce uh, labor. So a woman going over dates, yep, they'd give castor oil to get things going. Um, not recommended so internally anymore because it's kind of, it's, it's a little rough. Yeah. yeah. Okay. But topically, it is an amazing tool. Um, we can saturate a little cloth. I do it lazy style. I just put it on my skin. So over top of the liver, your right lower ribs, um, you put enough that you don't make a big mess, cover it up with a towel go to sleep with it overnight or put on a t-shirt that's okay to be stained. Castor oil can stain things. It will absorb into the skin. It basically enhances circulation in an area we place it and it helps reduce inflammation and congestion. Putting it over the liver actually helps um, the liver do its detox work. A really congested liver, I've actually seen it pull stuff out through the skin and cause I mean, a towel to turn orange and gross colors. Yeah, but I mean, it's being, it's, it's being put on the skin. Mm -hmm. Are you telling me that it goes through the skin, the fat, the muscle, the bone, and goes inside empty space in the belly and then to the liver and the intestine? Right? You know what I'm saying? 
Like you just I don't know if it skin. goes all the way through, but there is reflexive action that happens when we stimulate the layers of the skin. Um, there's whole systems of medicine like mesotherapy that are based on exactly that. They're tiny injections that we just do into the mesodermally derived tissue in the dermal layer of the skin to affect organ tissue below it. It works magically, but it's not magic, it's embryology. And perhaps castor oil works that same way. We're just stimulating from a skin level, but we're influencing organs lower down. Maybe, yeah. but I it certainly say, gets absorbed. Yeah, I have to say, I can't see like anatomically or physiologically how that works, but you've got nothing to lose by trying, right? Absolutely. Yeah. We, I would say, well, a clue that I think it does get absorbed deeply is that if we overdo it on the abdomen, it will have its laxative effects. So it will get to the bowel and cause that really? severe laxative by, effect. By just putting it on the skin? Yep. Wow. Indeed. Natural substances are compatible with our cells. Our skin takes things in and takes things out. It's not a barrier. It's a semi-permeable barrier. Yes, true. Yeah. It's, it's, uh, it's our interface, how we communicate with the environment. Exactly. Absolutely. Like in and out, it's a communication. Yep. All right. Great. So, 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 we, said, so, so we talked about uh, diet. We talked yep. about hydration. Vitamins. We talked about hydration. Castor oil packs. Okay. So one of the little points, um, that practice of doing castor oil packs has actually been shown to greatly enhance immune cells, like natural killer cells. Nifty. It does a whole bunch of great things for the body, but um, for just general conditioning. But particularly, it also helps actually acutely boost our immune function. So that's a particular reason to do it okay. now. Um, another super neat practice, again, kind of related to helping keep mucous membranes and especially your head not congested, um, is a thing called wet warming socks. Okay. This is an old school naturopathic hydrotherapy treatment. Sounds interesting. It is. And it's so good. It sounds terrible, but it's so good. You need a thin pair of cotton socks. Not used, I hope. Well, I mean, after, fresh, clean ones, yes. Clean ones. Okay. <laughs> um, you get them wet with as cold a water as you can. Okay. Cold water, you wring them out so they're not dripping anymore. Okay. And this is all at bedtime, by the okay. way. So you're ready to hop into bed. You get these socks ready. And then you need a pair of dry woolies, so wool socks that'll breathe. Um, so you have your cold, wet socks that are wrung out mm -hmm. and your dry socks. You run to bed, bust on those cold socks, Put the dry woolies over top. Lay down in bed. Don't walk around with those socks on. You'll get cold. But it'll feel shocking cold as you put them on. And yeah. very quickly, your body starts to redirect circulation to warm your feet up. So laying down in bed, you get this circulation redirected to your feet out of places like your head. Um, and then throughout the night, those cold socks will evaporate. The water will evaporate through the wool socks and recondense, evaporate, recondense through the night. So you get this cyclical kind of pumping of blood and lymph to your feet. Which is why you have the wool socks. Up exactly. The wool socks on top are critical. You're creating like a little ecosystem. There. Exactly. Okay. Um, by the morning, the socks are totally dry. You don't feel like you have cold feet at all through the night, okay. but it does a wondrous job to decongest the head. So um, if our mucous membranes are all like assaulted, um, it's a great tool there so for sinus congestion, headaches, migraines. Um, they just work wonderfully. Um, or if we have swelling elsewhere in the body, even in the ankles, just to 
enhance circulation of both uh, blood and lymph. So that is a super cool, neat little, also immune boosting, just because of the hot, cold uh, stimulation of the fluids in the body, but to decongest the head, awesome practice. So that would be like you do it for two or three days, right? It's not something you do every day. You could, you could do it every day. Just low circulation while you sleep. <laughs> I don't know what effect that has on your dreams or... It gives you a, like a more restful sleep for sure. Cause yeah. it helps calm the mind. Yeah. 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 Hmm. I did it for the good majority of my first pregnancy cause well, it felt so good. I'm yeah. just thinking about these people with like foot ulcers, let's say, or something. Mm. You need more, uh, if you had an open wound that but you wouldn't necessarily want the wetness. Correct. correct. Yeah. I'm not talking about the topical. Uh, kind of just, uh, if you have but a, yeah, yeah just more poor circulation, circulation issues in the feet. Yeah. More circulation. Yeah, I don't have clinical experience using it particularly for that issue, mm. but I betcha, I betcha there's some other naturopath out there who has used it that way. It sounds like something that would have been a remedy in the 14th century. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. The naturopathic textbook is from, from the, well, the 1800s. Do you want to update it? <laughs> no, no one, sh no one should update it. Really? They're all still golden. Yeah. Tested. They yeah. don't need to change. Great. All those old hydrotherapy tricks from Germany. Nice. And they're all from Germany. Uh, the birthplace of modern naturopathic medicine. Hmm. There was lots of hydrotherapy, water cure. By modern, you mean 12th century, 13th century? Uh, well, naturopathic medicine didn't exist back then, but no. naturopathic medicine uh, with the name emerged out of the 1800s in Germany. Hmm. Came to North America from with uh, a few Germans. Cool. Yeah. We should go into the history of that one. Probably based There's on uh, practices that were existing in centuries before. Yeah, like and elements of things put things together. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, or like herbal medicine was not new. All those different practices, but it actually became a practice. Dialogue. Yeah, and then there were schools. It, it packaged it into this school of thought. Precisely. All right. Yeah. So mm -hmm. other. So you said food, vitamins, hydration. You talked about the pastoral oil packs. Yeah. You talked about socks. Socks. What else? So. The top two, breathe and stop freaking out. Okay. So, and they're related, so I put them together. Because psychological stress lowers your immunity, right? We have direct evidence from a very medical perspective that we know exactly that. Acute stress um, paralyzes things like our natural killer cells and those immune cells that um, are our defense system. Well, your adrenal glands are stimulated. You're releasing absolutely cortisol. cortisol's up. You're in a high stress state, so you can't respond. Then, right? You're blunting your ability to respond to real threats. Precisely. Because you're imagining one, right? Precisely. Um, so it's kind of cool that we have that medical science to explain that fact. But um, I bring the German New Medicine perspective here in that the fear really is the thing that's going to cause the disease for you. Yeah, it's like a self-fulfilling prophecy. It is, is a self-fulfilling prophecy. Psychology and medicine intersect. Heck yes. Yeah. The influence on our psyche is what directs our body and what it is doing. Um, our psyche directs the healing or the disease process, 100%. And we can describe it through that oh. sympathetic, parasympathetic. So now you're going back to the German New Medicine principle. Indeed. Of, of your mind pattern dictates a physical disease, right? Precisely. But could it be just from looking at it from an organic perspective mm -hmm. that 
you know, stress lowers immunity, therefore you want to get it. Therefore, when you do get it, if your immunity isn't good, you won't be able to fight it. So it'll be more severe in you. Absolutely. So it's interesting because we have these like parallel paradigms that can explain things through different means, but it all describes the same phenomenon, right? Outcomes all the same. Exactly. So this is what I love the ability of our minds to think so adaptively. Um, some paradigms will fill in different gaps though. So do you want to know the German medicine Corona story? Yeah. Yeah. So coronavirus causes bronchitis. Okay. Sometimes secondary pneumonias, but that happens in a, in a healing phase when we get fluid accumulation on the lung, but primarily it's a bronchitis. So the trauma, the stressor that creates uh, damage in the bronchioles is a territorial fear conflict. Say someone comes in your space and coughs and you feel this threat of this virus that's apparently everywhere. Your territory has been uh, threatened and you're fearful of that threat. That's how my dog thinks. That's how everyone is thinking right now, right? We're all primed that we have to stay two meters apart, right? We're we're not doing it very well. We're not. I've scratched my face too. We have access to your um, (laughs) high dose IV vitamin C's and all that. We have some tools. Don't do this at home. Um, But so we're all sitting around here primed to stay two meters back. We even have a definition of what this, our personal territory should look like right now. So we're acutely aware of something that infringes on that territory. We're all primed with this fear of the virus that is going to make a pandemic. Everyone across the world has been informed and inflicted with this fear. And so, so how does this fear then lead to the so we just so they, have, they have the fear of the virus, right? We're all sitting here primed, ready for it, but you okay. still need the shock. Okay. So it could happen, you know, you go to Costco and you're like, we're all respecting our six feet rule. And then some woman walks up behind you without a cart and coughs. <gasps> right? And the psyche freaks out because all of a sudden your boundary has been crossed. Like it's a shock to the system. How could someone do that? Like, what were you thinking? Ah, like, like six feet. Sure. Someone freaks out as soon as they're over it. So that was the acute shock, the active phase, acute stress, the bronchitis happens in healing phase. So as soon as they relax about oh, it, so get that person to, gone. Trying to cough out, clear out your lungs. Is that, is that what we're, um, there is tissue. Um, so in that acute phase, yeah, we kind of, there's tissue that grows very temporarily mm-hmm. right it's just it bolsters that tissue to make it stronger to yeah. deal with the threat like thickened and flames tissue like we see anywhere precisely exactly yeah. then as it shifts into the healing phase that's when the inflammation occurs we that we get the infiltration the bugs um help with this process so that's the kind of these this virus that we'll see shedding from the cells are the cells now detoxing and get rid of getting rid of the effect of that territorial threat that we experienced? Yep. So it's the cleanup crew that we experience as the illness of the yep. bronchitis. Yep. 
Um, they create all that flung in place to try to flush things flush out. it out. That's why you cough. You're trying to get it out. Precisely. Right. Recondition the tissue. They're all detox symptoms when we're sick. Okay. We're generally all detoxing. Hence the things like the um, hydration and having those resilient mucous membranes will make that process easier. Right. And so that's why we do that preventatively. It's all about just having a resilient physiology to make it a smoother process. We have to go through it. You can't avoid the healing process. You can't avoid the illness. If you receive the shock, you got to go through it. But, but how, like, tell me, like, why did the, sh so you're saying it wasn't the virus, it was the shock. Correct. The fear, the psychological, right? How, how does that do that? Like how we per perceive whatever that stressor was. If it's an unexpected shock and we don't deal with it consciously in the moment, we're just like, <gasps> And we go into whatever it is, an automatic kind of stress response. We don't deal with it consciously and go like, oh, I'm fine. I'll wash my hand. Like I could talk to that person. Like have they been exposed? Does this make sense? You could rationalize out of that situation, right? But probably not. Someone would just freak out and then escape it. Um, if it's experienced as a shock and it's not processed consciously, basically the physiology will take on that stressor and it will try to solve the problem itself. So the bronchioles will react. So are you saying that you're so freaked out that you got this virus that your body will behave as if you did? Yes. To respond, to come in line with your fear, with what your mind is telling it to do. In this act case, it, yeah. I think I got the virus, act as if you got it. But it's not as simple as a self-fulfilling prophecy like that. Mm -hmm. It's because we actually experienced a territorial fear conflict. We could experience something else and get a different disease. Okay. Disease. Um, so why, what does territorial fear have to do with lungs? Why lungs? Why not some other part of the body? Um, good question. Well, Oh, I don't have a good anecdote for uh, that tissue on the top of my head. I have to dive into my German medicine books and well, look at some of their examples, but there's biological purpose to each one of those. Said, last time you said the lungs are your source of oxygen, your source of life. It's Indeed. How, how so breathe. that's for the alveoli. So if that's threatened, then they react, right? Indeed. That's for the alveoli, alveoli the actual lung tissue. Um, Not for the bronchioles. React to a death fright, but the bronchioles are more about territorial fear. Um, asthma is very much that way. Um, well, yeah. The, the conduits for the air to come in and out. Right? And frights generally. Locked conduits? Yeah, it is a boundary. Hmm. Oh. They're, when you dive into the biology of them, they're always quite, um, like, primitive and you can even see like animal examples um, of these things. So I'm, there, I'm afraid there, it's, so I should have looked the bronchioles up deeper in my. So there's a book out books. there that tells you what kind of psychological fear or shock will affect which part of the body system. Indeed. So Dr. Hummer made an index book basically. Um, and it's been translated into English and a few other languages. Um, unfortunately it hasn't been very updated. Because um, he continued his work over the next few decades after producing that work. Um, but there's a number of teachers still in the world kind of carrying his, his lineage and uh, doing his work. So 
I hope we can all keep it alive. Um, but yes, the book, basically, if we know the symptom or the disease, we can look up the location in the brain that's affected. Usually we don't care. And then the theme of trauma. So we can kind of understand what's going on. But if you had a CT scan and you saw a location in the brain, you could always then look up the other two. So the, those three always correlate. So you can look up one or no one and look up the other two. Hmm. All right. Any other general advice for keeping yourself healthy and uh, maintaining your immune system during these times? Well, so that secret sauce really is in keeping the fear at bay. And the way, the best way to do that, well, it's not really a way to do it, but the understanding that our expectations are the dangerous thing. When we have certain expectations of how the world should be, we are more apt to receive a shock when reality is not the way we expect it to be. So the most, re the, mo the most resilient people are the ones with the most flexible thinking and, the and have realistic thinking that like, oh yeah, it could be exposed to a virus. I, for example, I understand the stats for cancer are basically one in two people will get cancer in their lifetime. So I will not be surprised when I get a cancer diagnosis at all. It will not be shocking whatsoever. I will like, just proceed with the next steps I need to do. Um, and there's lots of good examples like that of things that we never expect to happen to us that just aren't realistic thinking. And so if we can soften our minds and be more just open and realistic, so life's full of ridiculous, weird, bad things. And yeah. we're really equipped to deal with them, right? We're way stronger than we think we are. So we can, are you just saying then, worry about it and, <laughs> and when it does happen just deal with it realistically is that what you're saying in a way that's all we can do there is no functionality in worrying about it or being priming ourselves to be so fearful and uptight about it well have you seen the we can take appropriate action and then relax about it you just do your appropriate action and it's done well I, the only thought i had was the only positive aspect of worrying mm -hmm is then you take precautions, then you have you change, you're, you're able to adapt to certain things. Correct. Now, as long as it's in check, but you yes. see that inverted U curve, whereby, you know, stress up to a level is helpful. Yes. Because it helps you prepare. But then beyond a certain level, it just overwhelms your system. And Precisely. And it becomes counterproductive. Right? Yeah. Well, and it's our using our emotions functionally, right? Worry is to, like the purpose of worrying is to solve a problem. So use that worry energy to solve the problem. Don't stay in inaction and stew. That's not useful. You're sequestering that energy then and making that emotion overwhelming. Let it move and do its job. You're like, right, I'm worried about this and it's because I haven't taken these actions yet. Take the actions and the worry goes away. Yeah, so worry enough just that you take enough precautions and then by taking the precautions, that calms it down because you know you've done your part. Precisely. And after that, the stress should go down considerably and then you go about life as normal. Exactly. As long as we can stay conscious about it, right? Watch yourself. We don't need to be ruled by our emotions, right? They're 
they're useful energy for us that tell us they're kind of like barometers that tell us what to do right we're worried about something so we should take the action to deal with that um yeah. i have to say I think, those things you know i think it's hard for people because they uh, they might do exactly that it's like take precautions they've done the rational thing and now they're not worrying as much but then they keep doing shit to stimuli the other Correct. The <laughs> There's news. the next step. Turn the news off. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So these, it's an endless barrage of cues telling you to be afraid. Yes. Like seeing how people behave and you're like, oh my God, this is how we're supposed to be. This is how we're supposed to not be afraid. Yeah. And that's the tragedy of the pandemic and what the media contributes to that. Hmm. It's important, you know, to spread the word so people know know the basics of what to do and but beyond that everyone you already know what to do yeah so shut the news off shut the tv off yeah so back to the virus now so mm -hmm. we both agree that um the problem with it is that because of the high infectivity rate then it can overwhelm resources you know, in a, in a discreetly short amount of time. Right. And that's the problem. If that was spread out over a longer time, yeah. then we'd probably be okay. And it's even, it might be milder than the flu. Although for people who are getting it and needing ICUs, it's not. Right? Yeah, exactly. So, but, um, so is the problem with it then that we just, it's completely new virus, that it's completely new to our, like our human body has never, has no, there's no collective memory of it. There's no immune defenses against it. And that's why the infectivity rate is so high. Because if you're exposed to the common flu, you probably have some defenses against that. You mm -hmm. have some immunity to it from your genetic memory, from your own experience. Whereas with this, none mm -hmm. of us do. That's why it infects so rapidly. Is that the idea? You know, I don't know what to think about that. I carry a very different view and we didn't quite quite go there with our German new medicine um, discussion there, but from a German new medicine perspective, they say viruses don't actually exist. Viruses, what, what we can see, what we've um, been able to demonstrate of a virus is simply actually detox byproducts of a cell that's been infected. It's not actually infected with anything. It's, okay, so it's had a shock and in that healing phase, it produces byproducts that we call the virus. Okay, so just I just want to go a step back. So, yeah. do you hundred percent subscribe to German new medicine and what they say and the principles of German new medicine? Like, is that your view? Or is that, it is. Is, that, is that just one of the many things you look at and you say, okay, well, from this school of thought, this is how they would explain it. From this, this is how they would. Like, for example, somebody in philosophy yeah. would say, this is what this school of philosophy look at it and this is how or, or do you or are you, do you yeah. now sitting here do you represent German new medicine because you've adopted it 100 percent? do you believe in it do you think that's the right explanation i do believe in it i don't believe it has every single answer well but the answers that it does have you think those are, are correct okay so whatever answers it does i do have, you subscribe. Okay. i have the flexibility in my mind to ditch it and use other paradigms okay. right when it's useful but i see the truth of it play out in every example I've ha had it and I've not had it uh, I've not had the theory fail for me yet okay and is it the same as can it be simplistically put as 
when you, you say German new medicine, but could, it, could somebody say, oh, this is mind-body correlation? Is that what that is? Like in a simplified uh, format? Yeah, pretty much. Yep. So it's your mind senses. How psychological trauma causes disease. Okay. You call it, they call it trauma, you call it trauma, but it could be a psychological process. Your way of thinking causes that. Uh, no, it has to be a conflict shock. It's a trauma. So it has to be a very discrete event. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Ongoing stress does, can prime us for those shocks, but there has to be a shock. Okay. And you were saying, again, can you repeat what you said about the virus thing? It's saying it's, just a, it's just a trauma and there is no virus? Correct. That's a pretty radical view. Wouldn't you say? It is a very radical view. Although, so is that just coronavirus or is that for all viruses, bacteria, mycobacteria, those exist, but viruses do not. Viruses do not exist. Do not exist, says German New Medicine. And there's there's interesting schools of scientists. We've seen the byproduct. We see a phenomenon that we call a virus, but German New Medicine would say there is not a Thing that is a virus living outside of the human body that comes and infects it. In fact, there's no such thing as contagion at all. So bacteria, for example, exist, but they don't invade us and cause disease, so says German medicine. Like we started earlier in this conversation, discussing how we actually have more um, genetic material that is bacterial in our beings than we have our own genetic material. They're ubiquitous. They're with us everywhere. Then why aren't we all sick all the time? That's kind of a kindergarten question. Um, well, in, in terms of medicine, mm-hmm. the way medicine looks at it, um, it's true. You have all these different bacteria, and they're all balanced out, right? But either some of them grow in, you know, in, yeah. in colony size proportion to the others, and they go haywire, or some of them which go and you have a disease state from some other reason and then they start to go haywire and go pathogenic yeah. or it's a completely new strain yes you have all these millions of bacteria in you but maybe more than millions but you have you know you do get yeah, a novel to, one yeah you do get exposed to a novel one that kind of pushes out the good ones so to speak yeah. so indeed and, so in that sense that is contagion right like you see it in a bed where there's a super bug and the nail person gets it. And it, you know what I mean? Again, German medicine say there has to be the conflict trauma there to mm. actually. So we're exposed I, to these bugs. Yes. You, I've seen people, you know, as you know, I've been doing ICU. So mm-hmm. I've seen people who are unconscious, mm-hmm. literally unconscious, deeply sedated, and intubated, and they're there for days, sometimes months. Mm-hmm. And then they will get. A, like their neighbor or someone else in the unit had a certain bacteria and then they get it too. Yep. Right. So unless they were dreaming of a trauma or something. You right? can. And they still had nurses attending to them, potentially like affecting that intubation tube. That's how, like that's where how it spreads. That's right? how it spreads. Yeah. Exactly. So they could experience a trauma of that intubation tube, even unconsciously. Mm-hmm. Um, Parkinson's patients, for example, um, are stuck in a hanging healing because they dream about their trauma, like on a cycle. So they kind of restart their trauma nightly in their dreams. And that's why they stay stuck in disease. Mm. There's 
interesting depths to yeah, I feel like how it can down, work. Uh, there is a rabbit hole. hole. There is a rabbit so hole there. Back so back to, up to back to viruses. Back to viruses. Yeah. So basically, there's a lot of interesting different sci- scientists that you can listen to that well can deconstruct what science has actually told us about viruses and what it hasn't and the german medicine explanation is still viable with what we do know uh, with exosomes and how how viruses have been demonstrated to exist thus far mm-hmm. um so it's interesting so the traditional view is and it's interesting you say viruses because it is a little bit of a yeah, actually in science. it is because because um, the um, viruses are there. They exist. They come in different shapes and sizes. Sure. Genetic material and then potential codes and proteins and you know they're made up of certain things. Mm-hmm. They are they're not really living when they're not inside your body. Precisely right. So they're like, they're like zombies or something right. So that they that's don't, they don't have. They don't produce energy. They don't interact with their environment per se. They can't multiply. They, can, they can't do essential vital functions of life. Precisely. So if you look at a virus outside of the body just sitting on a table surface. It's just fragments of stuff. Yeah, by all definitions. It's, it's not, not alive. It's not alive. But it is a unit of something, right? Exactly. It's now, stuff still. But once that gets into the cell, mm-hmm. it takes over the natural machinery that the cell uses. That's what we and, assume. And it takes over. It hijacks it. It uses it to make more of itself. And in that state, it's living, but it's, it's what we'll call an obligate yep. um, pattern. Right? Exactly. So there's a lot of assumptions in there, right? Mm-hmm. And we have to make assumptions to construct a theory. And so German medicine does the exact same thing with the same information and comes to some different conclusions. So German medicine looks at that and says, that's wrong. Well, exactly. You've assumed that contagion exists. German medicine assumes that it doesn't. So it has, has an alternate explanation about what the heck those particles are and what they're doing. So, so you, so according to German New Medicine, you'll get this disease, the viral disease, whatever it is, if you have a psychological issue. Yep, you have the shock, you get the bronchitis. But does that mean you don't get these, these materials that exist outside of you, the viruses? You can't get that inside of you and then develop the disease? No. Because that's what contagion is. It's coming from the outside to the inside. Right. And it's saying that never happens. So you've always had these inside of you then? We're surrounded by these bugs. The point is they don't cause the disease. They are not causative. They are there to help us in the healing phase. Mm. So viruses are this the byproduct of cellular detox in So they're sheep and wolves culture. They're actually good, isn't it? They're actually good. All of our bugs are actually good. So so that that part so that's part of that's true is the yeah. all the good bacteria we have right yeah that's why there's a whole and even the pathogenic around. stuff when it's caused disease disease yeah those illness symptoms when we have an infection is biologically useful that's helping us rid the body of materials that don't need to be there anymore that's the purpose of an infection okay. and those bugs are helpers in that process if we didn't have the bugs um, tissues just wind up uh, kind of caseating and becoming scars and we can never get rid of that tissue. Yep. And so this so, relates to kind of the, the natural progress of tumors. 
um, because we use infection to get rid of excess tissue. So in a bronchitis, it's really quite minor, but the exact same trauma on a larger scale, a bigger magnitude, would cause a bronchial tumor. Okay, so back to the virus issue. Yeah. So um, the traditional medical view would be that you get the virus infection and then your body's defenses activate and that's why you get yes. all the symptoms. That's why you get the fever, you get the cough, you get the spleen, yeah. you get the, like, all of it to get rid of it. Right? Exactly. So that's how you fight against it. But what you're saying is um, you had a psychological trauma. That was actually the disease process. And yep. then the whatever viruses whatever we want to call them are just your body's just it's just using them to help create those symptoms you had resolution of the trauma somehow and you swung into healing phase. so the symptoms are not based on anything physical right any physical insult that your body's been exposed to uh yes so that's the psychological insult caused physiological changes and so the That's all those symptoms yeah. is the cleanup that? crew. How do, you, how do you prove that as well? Dr. Hummer demonstrated cases. Um, right. So when he presented his thesis, he had forty thousand proven proofs yeah. that he presented um, when he presented his uh, thesis um, back in well the, the either late seventies or like by nineteen eighty, um, and unfortunately his thesis needed to be thrown out. He had um, members of, um, what do they call it? Like basically his evaluation panel mm -hmm. who came and spoke to him and said like, this is incredible, this is mind blowing, but it completely flies in the face of everything we know conventionally. So we cannot accept it because if we accepted this, we'd have to reject all of that work. And so we can't accept this. What, what kind of doctor was he? A medical doctor, he was an oncologist. He was an oncologist? Yep. Okay. And he was jailed. He for... just he just did the research and presented it. Hmm. Yep. So it wasn't part so, of the PhD or anything like that. Right? It was. He presented uh, as a thesis. Yep, to be accepted by the. Um, he worked at the University Hospital of Munich. Um, it was to. Mm, I'm not going to say it right. It starts with a T. Uh, the university that he actually presented his thesis to. Um. But yeah, his work, because it was so contradictory, could not be accepted. And he and was actually jailed for it. And you think his proof was that he got 40,000 cases where he proved there was a psychological trauma, showed that there was some scans of the brain showing to prove that the trauma existed. Yeah, so basically he came up with five biological laws and then supported those laws with proofs. So these weren't double-blind random placebo-controlled trials where we have an intervention that we yep. prescribe. Different type of yep. uh, scientific process here. Yep. An observational one. It was a pure empirical science of observation and how can we explain this phenomenon we're seeing. Um, so yeah, we should have another sit-down sometime where we go through the five huh. biological laws and just... Yeah, what year was this? Um, like 19, well, his son died in 1978, and it was by 1980 or 1982 his son at the latest. Involved? Was he talking about this after? Was he, did he take on the mantle of German new medicine or anything? No, his son is dead. No, but his son, like, did, did his son take that on? Or? No, the son's dead. He was shot and killed, which is what uh, Dr. Homer got testicular cancer from that trauma. 
Oh, oh okay. So you're saying mm-hmm. the sun is the re- it was the sun the reason he came up with all this? Yep. His own experience that precisely he used it to chart his story. Precisely. Hmm. There's interesting esoteric things that apparently things came to him in dreams and yeah. things like that. But and his forty thousand cases that you said it was all about cancer, right? It wasn't um, just other diseases. German medicine does explain kind of the spectrum of diseases, functional diseases yes. as well, like diabetes or that sort of yeah. thing. But his main thesis was just about was it just about cancer? Uh, no, of all diseases, but there is one of the biological laws is called the iron rule of cancer. It explains cancer particularly well because um, it's, well, it's kind of neat and it's a neat and clean example. It's easy to see versus our um, subtler and more functional diseases are um, yep. just a little trickier, but it even, uh, it even describes um, psychological diseases. Uh, they're called constellations. We need multiple traumas um, to put our brain in various states like um, in mania or depression and psychological disease is explained by German medicine as well. Okay. So according to German medicine, under those principles, mm-hmm. okay, um, how should one, how does one get the virus kind of into the metal and how does one, uh, you know, prevent it or protect against it according exactly. to those principles? First of all, you understand that contagion doesn't exist, so you're not fearful of this happening. So under German new medicine, then, there would be no social distancing, no quarantining. It's all ridiculous. All that gets thrown out the window. It's all ridiculous. Okay. Um, for me, not a German new medicine purist, I recognize that not everyone understands German new medicine, and that fear is real. It is very real, and that is what causes the contagion. Mm. So... I absolutely 100% respect the social distancing and all these measures because I know what they're achieving. Basically subduing the fear. And that is critically important. It's not doing anything in itself, but it's helping people calm down. Okay, you're doing something. Now you won't get it because you're not close to it. Precisely. So people put these psychological controls in place and it will help 100%. But an alternate means is to actually understand what's going on and therefore have no fear about it. But is it as simple as that? If you simply, if you truly had no fear about getting an infection, do you think that would protect you 100% from an infection? Well, and understanding how it happens. So can we 100% avoid being traumatized and shocked by our lives? No. But the preventative tools are things like self-awareness and a regular practice of that flexible thinking mindfulness um, those are our resiliency tools hands down but we're going to experience shocks along the way but then if we have the knowledge to immediately go oh i have a symptom well and then i've, I've studied german medicine so i know what that symptom means and then I can think back and go, oh, like what happened to cause that symptom? I can immediately figure out, figure that out, relax my mind, and the symptoms downgrade significantly when you do that. And so you can have a really short, mild recovery phase. Mm-hmm. Versus we go into resistance. When we're in illness, we're like, oh, I'm sick. I shouldn't be. I don't want to be. This is bad. It's not a good thing that I have all these symptoms. And we lock it in place. That resistance um, 
kind of delays progress. So it causes undue stress when we should be in this relaxing parasympathetic mode to get it done quickly. But what we understand about disease just completely kind of wrecks it. If we just relaxed in, you know, hydrated, rested, surrendered to that for a day or two, we'd get through illness like champs. So what I'm getting from this then is it's all about perception. It is all about perception. Like everything. Preparing for the disease, getting it, how to deal with it when you do have it, how do you approach it. Absolutely. It's all how you perceive what's happening and what's going on around you. It really is. Hmm. It goes quantum. (laughs) Interesting. Yeah, I mean, uh, I think the psychological aspect of things is like mainstream proof that it it, it significantly impacts the There is more and more. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think a lot of those things are just future science. So we can observe phenomenon that we have interesting theories for, and like germ theory is still that, right? Conventional medicine, it's still a theory. It's not a law. It's not a natural law. It's a theory, germ theory. So we have to be able to still think adaptively enough to gain more knowledge. If we just absolutely assume what we know is truth, that will limit us in the growth of our knowledge and understanding more and more of the world. So like it's I, bad scientific thinking yeah, to I, just take assumptions as truth or so, even to take ideas that we consider proven. Of course, science proves nothing, right? Um, you can provide proofs, but you can prove nothing by science. You can only disprove things. And that's the beauty of the scientific method, right? I think. I love it. <laughs> well, um, you can prove discrete small things, right? You can prove specific things. Does this medication work? What does, what does it affect this? Does this lower this or that? Right? You, can just, you can demonstrate evidence, but that's not proving yeah. something to be that's 100% proving, true. Uh, that's not proving like a very wide, large concept. Yeah, by scientific definition, that's not proving anything. You, okay. you can't. The scientific method doesn't it's prove anything. It only disproves. Have, it's just when you have enough proof of the smaller supporting We consider elements. something true. Because what you said about a theory, about journey medicine is just a theory. Uh, I mean, I agree with you, uh, but the um, uh, theory in science nowadays, like evolution, means more than what we think it is theory. It's more like it is fact, right? But technically, yeah. that's how the classifications work now. Yeah. Well, in like German medicine isn't necessarily a theory. It's a, it's a paradigm. It's a, like a school of thought, like Chinese medicine is, like Ayurvedic medicine is. Like here is a system of how we understand the world. It's a whole paradigm, yeah. which contains five natural laws in it. Yeah. So this isn't something that all naturopathic doctors adhere to, right? No. We're aware of. No. No. Absolutely not. What is the normal naturopathic doctor kind of, if there is such a thing? <laughs> but what 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 do they subscribe to in terms of what explains the world and how what guides them to how to approach disease? Probably decently individual, but more along the lines of conventional med- medical thinking, right? We learn standard physiology and understand that. Um, but I think a naturopath is probably more apt to think critically. Like, I, I bet you and I'm just throwing this out there, that I bet you a naturopath is more apt to not believe germ theory and think more. So Louis Pasteur at the end of his life was like, 
it's the terrain, right? He was discounting his own germ theory. And it's like, no, it's not just about the germs. It's about the terrain. And lots of naturopaths um, work more on that level of uh, the terrain refers to basically the environment, the condition of your body. And so we work on the condition of the body to, um, to make for a more resilient system that does not become susceptible to the bugs. So it's more, it's less about the contagion and more about the health of the body. Is it closer than to being preventative medicine than to reactive? Yes, absolutely. hundred percent. Okay. Which both are needed. Absolutely. Yeah. All right. Um, anything else you wanted to say about viruses or coronavirus? I think we did a nice little dance around that. Yeah. Um, so what we're going to take away from this is, mm-hmm. you know, follow the public health advice of officials. 100%. Right. And then stay healthy in terms of nutrition, Look hydration. After yourself. You mentioned a couple of tricks. Mm-hmm. And your psychology. Yeah. Look after yourself mentally. Don't be afraid. Right? Don't be afraid. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you very much. This was lovely. This was a great conversation.